0: Don't just live life, make life boom.
1: Good morning, people out there. Hopefully hopefully you're having a fantastic, brilliant weekend. I know Monday is fast approaching, but today I want to share with you a conversation, a beautiful conversation I'm going to have with a, a close friend of mine by the name of Ian Binks. We're going to be discussing... Why digital is so important within the NHS Okay And also obviously the health and social care factor um, Environment So Ian is responsible for delivering Complex clinical solutions So don't let that title kind of like um, um, Scare you or make you think that this conversation Is going to be so high, high level This conversation is all about bringing home Very complicated digital solutions or the digital solution um, paradigm, the conversation as to why it's so important so everybody can understand it, whether or not you're within health or social care or you're somebody on the outside thinking, why is all this digitization taking place and does it even add value when I go and see my doctor my nurse for some treatment? So Ian, with no further ado, how are you doing and welcome to the Mic Drop Club.
2: Hey Douglas, thank you so much for the invitation. I'm doing great. Um, it's great to talk to you on the NHS's 72nd birthday. You know, oh, brilliant serendipity! We're on the <laughs> NHS's birthday, so yeah, no, looking forward to this.
1: Yeah, and and what a, and what a beautiful thing the NHS is, as we're seeing with the coronavirus pandemic around the world. And we are very lucky in the UK to have the NHS. And um, we do salute all the, the the people that work within the NHS and supporting agencies that deliver care, because it's not the norm. Just travel um, across the pond and you see people, the health equalities are far more acute, I would say, across the pond in the US and even parts of Europe where they don't have the NHS.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Look, I mean, I have a a deep love and respect for this institution. I think we are so lucky to have it. We don't know how lucky we are sometimes. But, you know, I mean, my guiding principle uh, in what I do is that you know, healthcare should be a right to anybody, irrespective of, you know, whether you're born into money or not, where you live. Yeah. If you get sick, you should get looked after and you shouldn't lose your house because of it.
1: So exactly. I, I totally salute you on that one. That is exactly my 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 sentiment as well. Health is it's a right. It's a right. It, it is. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, so a big conversation. Big conversation <clears throat> in terms yeah. of um, health technology, digitization of health. Um, first of all, how did you get into this space in the first place? What's your journey been like? <laughs>
2: um, I got into this space almost by accident, I guess. Uh, you know, I, start, I started out, when I left university, I started out in hospitality. I was a restaurant manager, uh, a little bit of chefing, uh, looking after a bar, which in your early 20s is, is fantastic, you know, but when you get to kind of 25, 26, you're working a hundred hours a week. Uh, and you think, well, one day I might want to start a family. This doesn't look too cool. Mm-hmm. So I jumped ship, um, and ended up in sort of technology sales, which, um, just took me on a path to, to healthcare tech. And I, I, I just loved working with, uh, healthcare organizations, primary care, secondary care, you know, seeing how the sensible application of technology can really make a difference. And, you know, one side of my family was uh, there's a lot of doctors and nurses over there. So I've always kind of been in and around the NHS, you know, to be able to make a difference myself without having to go through the academic rigmarole of becoming a doctor. Um, you know, it was uh, it was really big for me. So, you know, I found my niche, I guess. It, it felt like something I could hang my hat on and, and be proud of. And when my son's old enough to start asking me what I actually do for a living, I think it would be cool to talk about. so.
1: Brilliant. Do you find it's hard to talk to people outside the NHS regarding the actual work that you do?
2: I don't know. I mean, to talk about what I do, I suppose it's it's not so difficult. I, I guess what people don't really understand is the challenges of working in an organisation like the NHS. Um, because it's such a, a massive organisation, but it is still siloed and, and you know, disconnected and fragmented um so the strategic problems are very acute but they're really difficult to t- tackle because mm. of the size so i think most people really just don't get what goes on in, behind the scenes of hospitals you know you know, we, we know about doctors and nurses and how hard they work and and uh, you know how underappreciated they are mm. but most people don't see the the stuff that goes on under the fabric of that yeah that supports it
1: yeah it is, it is a beast definitely um on the surface people who don't know I think it's just one yeah. organization, and it works um, seamlessly with each organization. But you know, there's so many moving parts to this within even yeah. a single hospital. There's so many different services and teams. So where I struggle as well is trying to explain how big it is when the media doesn't still portray it in that complexity. It still brings it back yeah. to a single NHS all the time, and so. Over the last few years, particularly around, um, I would say, when we talk about integration, a a typical um, person might not understand how difficult it is to push data between different services. They might take it for granted or take it as the norm that data does move freely and transparently across different services and don't even have those conversations around data sharing agreements and stuff. All the complexities actually are enabled from a, um, a clinical perspective and also a technology yep. perspective to make that actually work
2: yeah absolutely and i, I think you know for, for most people out there the NHS is the NHS it's one organization and so you know why 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 is it difficult to share records amongst different parts of it whether it's mental health and acute health or whether it's your Gp yeah. and your hospital um most people don't understand that even in a single hospital you know one small part of this organization there's there's four or 500 different it systems handling all sorts of different things plus all the paper records and i remember i remember once um uh, many years ago i i took my grandfather to uh, an appointment at Northwick park hospital um so he was getting the results of a scan and uh you know, we, we, we walked in there, we went to sit down and get the results of the scan and the, and the doctor sat there and he, he opens this massive paper record. I mean, it was like a foot thick because, you know, my grandfather was like 94 and, yeah. you know, he'd been around the block a few times yeah. So he had this, this gigantic paper record and he's going through it and he goes, right. So you're here for a, a dye scan, you know, to see, see about the circulation in your leg. And I was like, no, nope, we've had, he's had the scan. We're here for the results. He's like, no, nope, you're here <laughs> for a scan. <laughs> okay. He's definitely had the scan. And we went through this backwards and forwards. And it turns out he had two paper records, one in the name of his old GP, one in the name of his current GP. And there was no rhyme nor reason to what's going into each of these records. It was just pretty random. So some of the stuff's in one record and some of the stuff's in another record. And I, I just sat there and I thought, That's wrong. it's wrong. This is wrong. Mm. You know, because that guy was 94 years old. He's Cypriot. If he was on his, his, his own, he would have just had another scan. You know, and that's not right. This this is where the the, the wastage starts to come in. That's one case, of one patient in one hospital, and this kind of thing is happening all over the place. So.
1: Yeah, exactly. And, uh, and you talk about the wastage. It's mm. is, is not just a waste in terms of clinical time. You're actually introducing more radiation to a patient. Yeah. You know, so there's patient safety implications there when we do duplicate. Um, processes, which is rife. And I, I do remember the paper-based records and um, th- typically the older you get, the bigger the volumes, the more volumes you get yeah. <laughs> off paper. Yeah. So from 2000, I think the early 2000s, I really got into digital <clears throat> technology myself as well, the health space and the digitization agenda yeah. came about and trying to really make the case of why it's important for clinical records to become digitized in the first instance. Um, yeah, we went through that journey whereby a lot of it was just replication, really. Like you have the clinical notation, digitise clinical notation to make it look digital, and that didn't provide any more advantages to yeah. that your process because just copy literally. Yeah, yeah,
2: just doing the same process, just whether you're on a keyboard or a piece of paper.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's in terms of moving the conversation forward, like why are digital so important and Find the value, I guess, that is the benchmark, really. That's one of the things you have to go against, not just replicating um, existing processes. So, the, the resistance that we get sometimes mm-hmm. when we are discussing with fellow clinicians, um, managers, in terms of advancing a process and doing reimagining uh, a, a process is one whereby you get a lot of fear. Yeah, you know. So, how how do you how do you tend to um, to 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 de- um deal with that sort of um resistance that you can get?
2: You've got to engage properly. I mean, the projects that I work on are pretty complex complex um, clinical projects. So, uh, a lot of stuff I do at the kind of ICU end, um, also perioperative management. Um, but but I, I you know work across the spectrum but always it involves integration with other systems and it involves workflow change. And the thing about workflow changes, you know, there's always resistance to it. Yeah. Change is scary. And in a, a high pressure clinical environment, there's always the worry that change introduced risk. And when you introduce risk impacts patient safety. So the only way to really do it is to fully engage with the, The clinical teams, the nurses and the doctors, Mm. and understand what they do. Mm. You know, before you get anywhere near, this is what the solution is going to look like, and this is how much it's going to cost you. You've got to, you've got to talk about why you're digitizing. Okay, what is it you do now? What is it that works well in your current workflows, and you simply want to just lift that off paper and put it into digital? And what is it that you can't do effectively because of the current systems? So, for instance, you know. Admission forms in an ICU, on paper, super easy, because paper is the easiest thing to input data into. Um, So do you want to change that workflow? No. You want to just do a really easy version of it in a digital format. But when you introduce something like a workflow for, say, putting a patient on renal replacement therapy, you have a set of specific steps that go on when you you put that patient on that pathway. So when you digitize that, you have the opportunity to automate some of this Mm. to say, well, I'm the consultant and I'm saying the patient's going on CRRT. As soon as I do that, then tasks get generated for other people to do what they need to do. Mm. And that's the kind of thing that you can do with digital, but you only ever do it. If you really, really engage, if you turn around and you say, you need to buy this solution because it does this. You're, you're automatically on the wrong side.
1: Yeah, and, and that's echoed by a conversation I had with Dr. Giles Morrison. Um, he's, he's, he does, he's in the same digital space and providing a lot of quality and value in Germany around the health and um, digital transformation. It's exactly what he's talking about, is the, the level of engagement um, yeah. needs to really be um, addressed because it's not, shouldn't it shouldn't be superficial in terms of one exercise shadowing a clinician. Um, is yes. the, the deeper you can engage, the more, um, information you get back in terms of, cause sometimes the clinician is doing a task just based upon the way they were instructed to do a task. And just yeah. because you've shadowed a, shadowed a clinician doing a task doesn't mean that is even doing, even doing the task effectively or in exactly. accordance to the protocol and principle, because I, I've had conversations with, um, senior managers um, during g- digital transformation about process. And those they've, mm. they've given me they reference a protocol, and they're quite right. Yeah. That the protocol says this is how we do this process. However, I've said if you actually go to the co face, actually go to the ward, that's not mm. what they're actually doing. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. Know? So yeah. here's our clinical
2: governance. Okay. Right. But <laughs> if the tools don't support that, and that's not what your staff are doing.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
2: They're so- doing what they can. Exactly. To exactly. keep the patients alive. Like, that's
1: what they're doing. Exactly. Exactly. It's, it's, it's an environment like no other. And where where you're adding value as um, understanding the complexities of the clinical processes and trying to reimagine them and creating better solutions, no, that is what we need. We need people that can literally um, respect the, the discipline. Because sometimes I, I find, I don't know if you can uh, feed this back to me as well, your opinion, but I find sometimes – um, digital providers or clinical um, software providers don't really, really um, respect the clinical space in terms of the the noise, mm. the noise that, yeah. that that they have to operate in because they produce the the, the technology in a in a lab environment. It's yeah. not, you don't code on a ward. I yeah. can, can you imagine a, a coder trying to code on a busy? Okay. ICU Haney Ward yeah good luck (laughs) you won't be able to do it but then they expect the the solution to work yeah and a lot of it also
2: it can be a bit counterintuitive sometimes Um, but sometimes we need to take a step you know somebody's coming to us with a specific problem saying you know I need you to help me manage the patient data in ICU sometimes it's worth taking a step back from that and actually saying well where's the problem really originating Because the thing is, as much as the NHS is one organization, we've talked about how fragmented it is and siloed. Mm. And people solve, there's a danger with technology that you're solving a very narrow, you're taking a very narrow technology solution to solve a specific problem. And sometimes all that's doing is kicking the problem down the road. Mm. And we get why people do it, right? We've all got pressures. Uh, We've all got people above us telling solve that problem and you solve the problem that's in front of you. And in fairness, look, if my house started flooding every year, and there was no solution in sight. I'm going to do what I can to stop my house flooding and whatever that is and do some modifications, you know, landscape the garden or something, divert the water away from the house. All I'm doing is pushing it down to the next house down the road. That's their problem now, not mine, but my responsibility is to my family and my home. But really you need to look at where's the problem originating. And the issue is that a lot of what we're doing at the moment, somebody, somebody said something a, a while ago, I wish I could, uh, credit the originator of this but i don't even know who it was but it stuck with me what we're doing at the moment it's not healthcare it's sick care you know wow. we wait for someone to get sick and then this machine comes into action and these fantastic people uh, work their their butts off and they get the patient better and they get to a point where they they feel they're they're well enough to go home and at the moment with the pressures on beds that bar is pretty low
0: mm-hmm.
2: and once that patient's gone all the visibility's gone Mm. so you're caring for them when they're sick but you're not helping them get healthy and the care is starting too late in the process and finishing too soon so we need to join it up need to join it up Mm -hmm. all the way through the acute care but then down outside and there's technology that exists to do this we can give that visibility you can you can transfer a patient to a you know an assisted living facility or to home, depending on where they need to go, right? Who the, who the patient is, but still provide that visibility of patient vital signs and, and clinical data that gives you that comfort, that, that, that safety net that, you know, if they start to deteriorate, drop off the cliff a bit, you intervene sooner Yeah, and it's better for them. It's cheaper. It releases the burden of care because the burden of care at the individual level at like ICU is insane. Yeah. You've got to spread it out. And, a lot of time and investment goes into helping people manage the, the, the surges in demand for the high acuity care. And you need to do that. That's really important because these guys are struggling. They're burning out. But part of that is not actually putting stuff into that area. Part of that is understanding why people get there in the first place. That if was, you start doing healthcare instead of yeah, sick care,
1: yeah, yeah. you can get there. That, that, that was profound. And, and do you know what? As, I, as you are saying, I was looking for the button. <laughs> so <laughs> so you, you have to get this retrospectively.
0: Okay, guys, everybody ready? Atomic Mic Drop.
1: Yeah, that, that's so important to understand that we're not really providing the right level of care. It's sick care effectively yeah. as, as you quite rightfully said and yeah and where people go for sick care is a hospital where yeah there's a lot of data that we collect all the time that is not actually not referenceable we cannot actually use it but there's data constantly being generated even my fridge door yeah. collects data we've got a new fridge freezer and it's yeah. collecting data every time I open and close the door so yeah. there's data all around us. It's making insights off that so that we can be more preventative. And you're quite right in terms of if we get there soon enough in the care yeah. space, we could provide intervention that is le- le- cheaper, less evasive, yeah. and has better out- outcomes, which is what you're it, quite it, right to say.
2: Exactly, exactly. Because it's so reactive at the moment. And, you know, these people are fantastic at reacting. They They save lives day in, day out. But, you know, just every hit they take, they keep moving forwards and it's so fun, fantastic to see, but you know what? Why do, why do they have to get hit so much? Yeah. Why can't we just mitigate that a bit? You know, stop doing so much reactive care and start doing preventative care, keep people healthy longer.
1: Yeah. Yeah, It's a, it's a very, very big conversation piece because, um, if you're trained in one way, like I was trained to help people that are already unwell mentally. Yeah. That's in the house. I'm really trained. The preventative stuff has come along my journey as a qualified mental health practitioner. I understand mm. recovery models and preventative care, but it was really my training was really much focused as to what then do you do when somebody is having acute mental health breakdown, et cetera, et cetera. <clears throat> now, if you've got clinicians across different spectrums that are trained in a very reactive way of working, I would say a lot of work needs to be done in re-educating the educators that train these clinicians yeah, so that they can see as upon, uh, upon qualifying with your, of your um, registration, you're already thinking in that mindset and you can position yourself and know that there is a role for you to play outside of the immediate hospital. Because I think if you look at where most of the um, employment takes place, it's in and around the hospital whereby where yeah. there are opportunities to work in schools, for example, school nurses, doctors, all of that kind of stuff, universities, um, police cells, you know, there's there's so many ways you can go work within the health and, and social care um, perspective. But I think we need to do a lot more to highlight the the breadth and the depth of mm. what you can do before somebody actually gets unwell.
2: Yeah, and a lot of that is supporting, you know, what you do with the data. So if you're supporting the management, so if I come back to the critical care environment where I spend a lot of time here, there's so much data, there's masses and masses and masses of it. Mm. Um, It is difficult to use. And, you know, the the primary function of the the critical care doctors and nurses is to keep their patients alive long enough for them to get better. It's Mm. it's life support function. It's supporting organs and bodily functions until the patient can get better and go home. But all the time you're generating so much data. And what we can do with technology is support. How do you get that data out and then then use it for research? And a lot of the critical care consultants that I work closely with are, are really super focused on this because, yeah, you've got to put the fire out. You've got to keep putting the fire out and that's keep the patient alive, but you've got to work out why the fires keep starting and using this data like proper structured data where you can start to understand what are the biomarkers for sepsis? Why do certain patients with COVID-19 develop these you know, blood clots and their lungs go really bad, whereas others don't? If you can start identifying consistent markers for these types of things, then you can create better ways of caring for these patients so they don't get to that point. So you're not getting patients with multiple organ failure from sepsis coming into ICU constantly because you pick them up so much earlier. And, and, and this, is, this is key. This is where technology can really come in, in, in handy. It's not just manage the problem. It's, it's, you know, let's go back further down the chain, see if we can pick it up. When the patient's still relatively healthy, but they get a call from the cardiologist saying, look, you know, the data I'm getting from your smartwatch, you know, I've got one of these little smartwatches. It's pretty cool. It measures my heart rate all the time. Mm. Data I'm getting from that is showing something interesting. I'd like you to come in for an outpatient appointment. Start them on a uh, a drug regime if they need to before they they have a cardiac arrest. Exactly. This is key. This is what I'm so excited about in
1: technology. Yeah, so, so am I. So am I. I totally mirror mirror your sentiment there because if you look at the, I'll say BP before patient <laughs> before you become a patient. Yeah, you know, um, you need we need the ability to to manage data the data that you're collecting across whole raft of different devices. Because that that yeah. way we get the context context right. As I was explaining to Dr. Giles the other day that my blood pressure, if I'm in the dentist's chair, is through the roof. It's just yeah. through the roof. And if you take that as that's how I am normally, you might prescribe me some medication, some beta blockers exactly. or whatever, which is yeah. not right. It's the context of your data as I sleep, I'm, I'm mm. emitting data. Even if I was a student, my, res- my grades could be indicating some sort of issue you know, my employment status, there's so much data that affects health. I think health is slowly moving out of the health-centric domain and moving into mm. a more care holistic type model that is has not been clearly defined yet. But yeah. I think this is why I find it exciting as well that we're coming to understand the importance of environment, street lighting you know, opportunities. Mm. COVID has really brought home like health disparities across the, the globe, and across areas, yeah. you know, and then targeting our resources around that is what will be key because we want to stop people even becoming a patient.
2: Exactly. You know, fundamentally it will shift to the whole population health management model, which is really important. And that is, you know, one, it's education. Like get people to eat better, get people to quit smoking, get people to drink less. You know, these these things are educational, and they and they come down to demographics as well. Social um, social circumstances are super important here. So something needs to address that. That's that's a policy decision, really. But also, you know, the the concept of genomics, um, personalised medication, scanning, screening. Um, And the research that goes on at the the top acuity end, why are people deteriorating like this? And starting to understand the the biomarkers for those sorts of things. So that you know, look, if a certain type of person develops pneumonia, there's a fourfold risk of them uh, degenerating into sepsis. Okay, so we keep a closer eye on that patient. We maybe bring them into hospital where we wouldn't normally, because we know that there's a super high chance of them deteriorating. Things like AKI, all of these sorts of things that, that that really really damage people very quickly, but we don't understand why some people get it and some people don't. Exactly. So, mm. so population health management will be, you know, very important. But right now, I guess we're not there. So, what do we do? We need to employ technology sensibly across the current spectrum to say, okay, well, we can get more visibility, and that's using things like wearable monitoring devices, but linked to proper remote clinical dashboards that give the right people the right information. So the cardiologist has got the atrial fibrillation patients, the the respiratory doctor's got the COPD patients, all that kind of thing. Like you can see what's going on with the patients who aren't with you. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, you know, that's doable.
1: I think it's doable. Is doable. I think the government, um, the UK government set a good example on how not to deploy technology <laughs> um, in terms of you know, um, The right people For the right reasons Have to be deployed To provide solutions And um, I'm not sure how many millions That they invested in this um, Track and trace software um, <laughs> But I, I can assure you A lot of momentum was lost Yeah, And the opportunity yeah. to gain Real data at when we were at the Epicentre of the Coronavirus in the UK has actually been lost because of this, the failing of the app. When there was technology out there that yep. that companies have invested billions.
2: Yeah. And again, that's kind of, that's a political move. And it's, um, you know, it's, it's just unforgivable, really. Um, th- this is one of the worries with, with technology. You know, I mean, it, I, I love digital health for what, the potential it has to offer. But there's pitfalls. There's there's issues where people create technology that really is solving a non-existent problem. And then they're looking for problems to solve with it. And that gobbles up investment that could be used elsewhere. And it and it distracts from the real solutions. And then there's the more insidious problem, which is where technology is used to paper over real systemic problems. So where you look at you've got 80 odd thousand Vacancies in the NHS. We just don't have enough nurses and we don't have enough doctors. Mm. And you start deploying technology that says, oh, it, sh- it saves 40 minutes per shift or, you know, 10 minutes per patient or whatever. And what that's doing is creating this mirage that that problem of the lack of staff is not such a problem. Oh, look, you know, this nurse has done a 12 hour shift and now she only has to do 20 minutes of additional documentation that she's not getting paid for mm. instead of, you know, Two hours, great. But is that solving the problem for the nurse? No. You know, it's papering over, it's creating this mirage, and it's not acceptable because it allows people to get, over, get away with these policy decisions of not filling those gaps. What you need to do instead of investing in this technology that, that, that's papering over the cracks, take that investment, use it to pay nurses what they're worth, pay doctors what they're worth, make it more attractive for, for people to train as nurses and doctors make it more attractive for people to come to this country and work in the NHS. Hmm. Why are you spending money on technology that makes it look okay? Yeah. You've got to support the staff first, right? Because it's, it's, it's not just that there aren't enough of them. People are burning out. People are suffering from serious mental health issues because it's traumatic. They watch people die,
1: Hmm.
2: you know, Hmm. Hmm. and it's not okay to just say, well, just get on with it.
1: With your twenty-seven grand a year, and I'll clap on the doorstep for you. I'm sorry, that's not cool. No, you're you're so you're so right, and um, I've wrestled personally some real horrific scenes, and I've known that I can't really go anywhere outside the clinical environment for supervision for support around that. It is a environment like no other. We we shouldn't treat our nurses, our armed forces, in su- in such a way. We need to actually respect the um, yeah. the the discipline that they go through to do the to do the tasks that they do so well. Um, I think um, in support of What you're saying there A big thing I've noticed is This whole wants and needs Discussion Yeah, You ask the clinician what they want Typically, yeah They'll give you things that They might not actually need You know yeah. And they end up get, And if software companies develop On the basis of a want You find that The service doesn't improve clinically Or in a far more efficient way i.e. I just want a tablet. I want my clinicians yeah. to walk around with a tablet. You know, how many hospitals, how many walls out there have invested hundreds of thousands on, on those types of solutions and they're actually now uh, what's it called? Um, they're, re- they're now hidden in the top drawer in someone's office. Yeah? Yeah? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Never yeah. deployed because it was a want. It was a want. Mm-hmm. I think at some point we need to move to needs. Yeah, within, mm. particularly when you work around with um, taxpayers' money. I can, yep. I can have a want all, all day long. Like in, yeah. in Singapore, for example, I think the speed limit is something like 30, 40 miles an hour in Singapore. Mm. But they've got the most Ferraris in mm. Singapore because people want them in Singapore. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But it's not practical. It's okay. It's your own money. You do what you like with it. But when we're working with taxpayers' money, There's no good saying, I want a solution. You should have Mm. a need. The need should trump your want. And that need should be something that's been clearly documented, clearly defined. That way you can measure it post-implementation. I think this is what tends to happen in in some of the um, transformation pieces I work in. You deploy a piece of technology and you don't even have a good baseline in the first place because Mm. actually the trust is working with a want yeah not a need. because if you was a real yeah. need, you would have a benchmark
2: number exactly. yeah, because you understand. you understand you know your mortality rates one point three or something like that instead of instead of one or below one. You understand you've got so many de- delayed transfers of care. yeah um, for it to be a need, you have to you have to measure that data. But interestingly, so just on the flip side of that, sometimes the wants actually unpack into something really useful. So I was working with a, with a doctor about a critical care information system and um, we were doing an all day demo and and sort of on the coffee break, me and him were having a chat and I said to, you know, like, what do you want out of the system? And he turned around to me and he said, you know, I know this isn't going to happen right now, but what I want is in a few years time, I want to be able to look after my patients from Waikiki beach. (laughs) all right that sounds nonsense but let's unpack this a little bit let's let's find out why what what, what are you talking about here he says well look i'm a consultant i don't have to actually you know be right next to the patient because primarily my job is making decisions it's consuming the information deciding on a therapy plan and as long as i trust the people who are there at the bedside to do what they need to do and as people trained to do the procedures like tracheostomies and things like that Mm -hmm. then I don't need to be there. I said we really got so okay, why Waikiki Beach? And he said, Well, look, I'm already burning out, you know, and and I'm in my mid forties. I don't want to burn out in my early fifties. And so my perspective is I want to work three months here. And then when I'm on nights, I work three months in Waikiki because what I'm doing is working during the day there. And what I'm not doing is screwing up my body clock going from days to nights and nights to days. Wow. And actually, right. It's a, it was a really, really important piece that we wouldn't really have got to if we weren't talking about the fact that he just wanted to sit on Waikiki beach, could have left it there and gone, well, that's just high in the sky. Right. But actually it's a really, really key point it is, is, it is okay. It is. Yeah. Cause you understand, you know, he, he's going, if I burn out in my mid fifties, who's taking over from me? you know I'm the most senior consultant here who's coming up behind me you know and uh, yeah it it was it was a really interesting moment for me because i thought if we don't have these conversations you know we're not really understanding what the technology is doing for these people
1: yeah yeah so, because ultimately technology and this is where i've stopped using words i try to so if anyone can has quoted me saying enabling, fine, I accept it. right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to, I hate that word enabling. I really do, but I find myself using it. But technology should ultimately move towards liberating um, clinicians from something, a process that they don't need to be doing. You know, yes. that, that's where we need to be moving to. Enabling is, I don't know, I, I really struggle with that. But, but that use case you're talking about, that one use case about why Tiki mm. Beach um, it's useful. I, I I totally get it, and having more conversations, frank, open conversations with those um, with people that understand the problem. Because I guess if you yeah. really understand the problem, you can talk in the wants and the needs scenario. Yeah. Because you truly understand this is a guy that's looking yeah. to change where he works in order to still provide value at work. So exactly. Different
2: in types. order to to be able to do it better. Um, and this is the point because they're making life and death decisions constantly. And you need to be at the top of your game as much as you can. Right. And we all have up days and down days. Okay, But if you're constantly moving from days to nights in 12 hour shifts, it, it gets you. I mean, look, if I look back at my days, managing a restaurant and a bar, right. Very different, but working a hundred hours a week, getting up at four o'clock in the morning and, and, and going home when the police have finally dealt with all the drunk people, yeah. <laughs> it, it, gets to you you make bad decisions and we have the power to do something about that if we really really understand what their problem is and what the technology can do because fundamentally you know remote working from waikiki beach is there (laughs) is there architecturally a problem with that no no i guess the issue at the moment is things like you know connectivity bandwidth can you guarantee that you'll be able to to have a live connection but you know, it, it, these are the interesting things. I think, you know, it's it's the humanity of the piece rather than just saying, well, I've got this cool piece of technology. Do you want it?
1: No, it's brilliant because um, what we've seen with COVID, we've seen a compelling reason for people to uplift the conversation around, um, like what we do now, Zoom conversations, Skype calls, all of that kind of stuff. And these were, this has been technology that's been languishing in the NHS <laughs> for over 10 mm. years. Over 10 years. Yeah. People yeah. had the ability to engage in conversations remotely, but yeah. it fell down on governance. It fell down on how can I be sure that you're in a secure environment and no one's listening in on the conversation yeah. and where all of this kind of stuff. But now compelling reason um, COVID-19 hits, do you know what? We have to find a way to engage and communicate. So now we are where we should have been 10 years ago at yeah. least yeah. 10 years ago, yeah. um, which is, which is fine. And I feel sorry for Skype, by the way, because yeah, well, they, they, they had the technology, maybe the business, business module wasn't quite right for the NHS, but Zoom just came in and zoomed away. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The Skype, and I think there's a lesson there as well, in terms of software companies um, remaining buoyant throughout the whole sales process it's so easy to go away with your toys when you realise, when you come to conclusion that a trust doesn't have the money or doesn't have yeah. the, the inclination or they prioritize something else over your technology for mm. that particular year and go away with your toys and say, forget that yeah. trust. Just forget about yeah. that. You know, it's just staying yeah. buoyant, staying, adding value, um, white papers, checking on the trust. You know, who knows? They might always keep you front and centre in their mind so when things do turn around... You're there. Mm. But I know yeah. many senior executives who, when COVID hit, COVID-19 hit, weren't thinking about Skype at all. <laughs>
0: mm.
1: No.
2: No, I mean, at Skype all. kind of pioneered all this sort of stuff, but then just didn't really develop. And you look at the, the, the functionality that you get with things like Teams or, or, or Zoom or whatever.
1: Exactly,
2: um, What people need to do in these meetings they, they, they went those other routes because they just felt like, you know, Skype
1: doesn't really do enough. Yeah. yeah. And, and we've seen that with, because um, as clinicians, we always look for a way to solve a problem constantly. So when WhatsApp mm. came out, we were thinking, OK, we need to send messages across this hospital. We yeah. don't have the integration piece. To, but I know yeah. my mm. doctor on the third floor in the acute ward, um, I know his mobile phone now, but I can send a message on WhatsApp you know, mm. yeah, and that's what they were yeah. doing for a couple of years before they were got found out, and obviously IG got got involved, in they trying to make the whole situation a bit more secure. But again, technology is such that we, the community, I'll say the com- consumerization of de- of of technology is encroaching on the health space at an alarming pace. You know mm. what our kids are doing with technology. We also going back to work and thinking. How can I be a professional being trained for all these years, and my kid at home or the backseat of my car is playing with more technology than I have <laughs> yeah, and i'm patient facing that's a travesty that 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 cannot be the case moving forward um post twenty twenty can I
2: have it? yeah yeah i I agree and I, you know one of the things that always used to get me is yeah uh, you know, you could sit on the bus on your way into work. So say you're 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 an ICU nurse. and You sit on the bus on your way into work, and you got your smartphone. You can book your holiday, turn heating up and down in your house. You can you know look at your your web cameras to see if the dog's eating the rubbish, do all sorts of stuff. Book your you tell the delivery driver you're out to deliver to your neighbour. All these cool things you can do. All of that. Then you get into hospital where you're looking after the sickest patients around, and they give you a stack of post-it notes and a pager and a pen. Yeah. And say crack on. Crack. That's backwards. You know, that is absolutely backwards. It is. You know, the, the 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 technology you have at your fingertips in the consumer world compared to the technology you have at your fingertips to save people's lives, it's just wrong. It's the wrong way around.
1: It is completely, completely the wrong way around. Um we talk about, we talked about usability in a previous um um podcast. The in in technology's sake, and I think the way the tech works as well, <laughs> you know, we yeah. kind of like, we need something that's truly intuitive, you know, um, and a lot of things break down whereby if I have to think, really think where the on-off button is or where the next screen is or how to activate a particular functionality, that is taking too much time whereby I should be thinking about the needs of my patient. You know, opposed to yeah. navigating.
2: Yeah. And that's, it's about thinking time, isn't it? And this is what, you know, the, the ICU doctors I talk to all the time, what they want is thinking time. They don't want to be just shuffling information from one place to another. They want to be able to think about what's going on with the patient. And, uh, you know, I, ICUs haven't changed in 60 years, hmm. right? Since they were invented, they, they've stayed basically the same. There's just more stuff in them. And, um, you know, you talked about the noise earlier. This is a big problem, the noise, because you've got so many machines in your patient monitor, pulmonary ventilator, infusion pumps, CRRT machine, blood gas analysis, all this stuff. Mm. So much tech and all of it's beeping and alarming. And it, the technology does exist to reduce that noise level. But it's about everybody getting on board because the medical device manufacturers haven't moved on in, in, in those kind of 60 years. Yeah, they're more, they've got more tech, but they haven't moved on to the point where they say, you can, you can use this in a, in a silent way with another alarming mechanism, which is, which is in the hands of the people who need it. And that would be a huge change. Because the noise levels, that they're, they're, they're consistently above the, the WHO guidelines. Yep. Patients, you know, 50% or of patients suffering from delirium in ICU. Thitonous and that well. guarantees that they will spend longer in ICU than they need to. It, it increases the risk of a heart attack. It increases the risk of a stroke. They get hallucinations. It's, it's terrible. And a
1: lot of that's to the noise. Yeah. too noisy. It is too noisy. And whilst software has been developed in the lab, you know, controlled environment, air conditioning, you know, shields, you know, so that people can't talk over each other and all of that kind of stuff. But yet in the real world, you know, things are not done yeah. that way. Look, look, I'll always use the military as an example when they're making weaponry. You know, they mm. know the environment is very noisy, can be very dirty. So mm. the systems, the, the guns and all that kind of stuff are tested to work in the most extreme environments. Yeah. Um, our software that we see tends to not be tested in the most extreme environment. Even when we do a typical user verification testing, UAT testing, it's mm. typically done in a very sterile way, like a very clean way. Okay, now yeah. you're testing and blah, 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 blah. That is not moving the conversation forward. There's a lot of beautiful tech out there and there's, there's a lot of software companies that are sincerely trying, but I think they also need to, to really um, step up uh, and improve their um their testing capabilities. Mm. They need to step up, improve. I think iterations, as seen consumerization. You know, our Apple phones constantly ask you to update themselves. It needs to be mm. updated because it they realize there's a a security breach. They realize that they need to upgrade the firmware. Um, we need to have that same sort of mindset whereby. Don't be too scared to upgrade the firmware. Don't be too scared to upgrade the way the software works if you realize that it needs to be changed because that is more important than allowing workarounds. And there are too many workarounds yeah. at the moment that becomes best practice. That becomes current practice, not best practice. Current practice.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And uh, you know, I, I agree with you. And that that that's a change in the governance of how these these solutions are deployed in healthcare environments. That that that's kind of a both way. Um, conversation because it's it's also, you know, the IT people and the clinical governance people at the hospital end need to be open to more updates and, and how the updates are managed um, because look in, in the digital health space, you know, either directly or indirectly, I work with some of the smartest people on the planet, you know, um, and, and a lot of the people that I work with got into this for the same reason as I did, because they want to make a difference. Mm. They want to actually improve healthcare sometimes you're a bit hamstrung by, you know, the, 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 the constraints to the deployment of technology in, in healthcare. And I get it, okay, we, we talked about the risk and, and um, you know, the, the fear of change. But I think COVID has been interesting because the deployment of technology has been so rapid because it's had to be. Yeah. And I think what a lot of hospitals are finding out is actually you can be quicker at this, can be a bit more agile and I, and the technology companies that you're engaging with they're not sharks they're actually out there to be they're on the same team as you yes you know yes. so um hopefully hopefully that will that will continue I, I, maybe not quite at the same pace right but but just don't go back to the way it was before where it takes four years to make a decision because yeah. the problem's been and gone by then
1: Exactly. And I think going back to the beginning, whereby a patient, when the patient is the patient on the ward, they have all the data. When the patient is discharged, the data is missing. So only as a patient can we do and intervene in a positive way in regards to their health. And that needs to be pushed forward. We need to be able to track, monitor and support people to live independently, not to trap, monitor, yeah. to to add uh, or to take away some of their freedoms. No, it's all in order to them to live to their full potential, and that is a humanitarian type Ex- of conversation. Yeah,
2: exactly, and that that's about just extending that wing that you put over them past the hospital environment, and it doesn't mean it doesn't mean intervening in their life. It doesn't mean putting constraints on them. It just means giving visibility. I mean, the concept of the longitudinal health record has been around for a while, right? And it's a very difficult one, but just visibility of what's happening with a patient because you've got a smartwatch or you give them some wearable, um, technology, some remote technology that they take home with them. And an application that says it's time to measure your blood pressure. It's time to measure your SpO2 shows them what to do. You know, you get rid of the problem of white coat hypertension because they're not seeing a doctor. So their BP is real. Yep you know, it's not elevated. You just see what's going on. And 90% of the time you don't intervene. The patient's fine. You know, after a while you stop monitoring them. But you know, that 10% of the time where the patient starts to go funny, you get there early, you know, Yeah, exactly. you stop them getting to the, the really acute phase. So, I do, for me, it's just it's a no brainer that it's, that has to happen because an, the technology is already there for this.
1: Exactly, and I I also give the example of that footballer, is it Samba who had a heart attack on the football pitch. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. I, I forgot, can't remember. I forgot name his name. Yeah. I forgot his name. But basically, he was in the best place to have a heart attack <laughs> because defibrillators were on were available as well as medics. So they they yeah. conclude that you were the best place to have a heart attack. You couldn't have mm-hmm. a heart attack in a better place than on the football pitch. And that yeah. I think that case was I think five, six years ago. Yeah. That shouldn't be the case now in 2020. You shouldn't say the best place for you mm-hmm. to have a heart attack is on a football pitch. You should no. have the ability to um should, the ability to have professionals intervene before you even have that awkward arrhythmia. Exactly. Exactly. And if you have
2: enough visibility, enough data, enough data points of the heart rate over a given period of time, you know, there's, there's machine learning algorithms, and there's a lot of incredibly bright cardiologists who, if they've got visibility of the data, they can just turn around and go, I'm not liking the look at that. You know, we need to, we need to intervene with this patient and they'll get there before they have the catastrophic heart attack. Because if you do that, when you live alone, and you're you're at home, you know, that's it. It's going to be very difficult to
1: come back from that. Indeed so. So uh, we've we've travelled on this conversation, Ian, and I'm very conscious of your time.
2: (laughs) I'm, I'm I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I do have a tendency to go off on a tangent. (laughs) No, it's <laughs> time beautiful. to time. It's a subject that's close to my heart. You know. yeah, I think
1: it's brilliant. I think it's brilliant. And there's so many bits and pieces that um, areas that we can go into more detail at a, at a later stage. But I think as yeah. framing the scene, saying set, the panacea right, so people understand mm. um, what digital means. You know, within the health and social care environment. You know, talked about don't just digitize for sake of digitization. There's the why is so so important. Whether or not yep. we build from a want or a need, but it has to be one that is clearly articulated as you know this is what you want to achieve, and through the technology you can achieve it, and you can measure that and iterate the software to continuously improve clinical practice. Um, yep. I like your sentiment in terms of you always bring it back to the individual, the patient. You know, we're all with technology out in the day is only to to help liberate patients, liberate. Mm. um, clinicians from any process that takes away the freedoms. Cause let's be honest, when you're a patient, your freedoms are taken away straight away. When you're looking and you're lying down on that um, bed, your freedoms are taken away. You might not be on a section, but you can't just walk out as a while. You're now receiving receiving treatment. So we want to keep people free um, from ill health. Preventative um, health is is the way instead of having this. um, Yeah treatment of the sick as you've read to
2: yeah just move away from sick care and move move to healthcare
1: fantastic fantastic keep people
2: healthy right?
1: indeed so so Mic Drop Club we salute you Ian have a fantastic week thank you very much and you guys take care outside bye bye it's
2: been an absolute pleasure
1: thank you thank you
0: thank you for listening Don't forget to check out MikeDropClub.com and get the show notes and useful links. Subscribe to the podcast. Don't just live life, make life boom.